Next week, Pastor Sean is going to start a new series of talks, and it's called Greater Than, okay? And we're going to explore for the next few weeks just how Jesus is greater than everything, okay? That's pretty much the height of it. Uh, and we're going to discover in uh, Colossians how uh, Jesus is sufficient for living and how he is supreme in life, okay? And uh, so it's going to be an exciting thing. So invite your world to that and make sure you are here for that as well. Well, all right, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and I'm going to try, okay, to answer uh, this big question, why am I here, okay? Anyone want to know, why am I here? Why am I here, okay? We're going to try and explore that, that's kind of where we're headed. So Ephesians 2, 10, here we go, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and of course, like every other letter that Paul writes, it would have been carried around the region and read out to whoever the churches were by the person who sent it and brought it. All right, as for you, he says, then he's writing here, so you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There's a lot in that line right there. But verse 4, we carry on. But because of his great love, okay, God's great love, not his half-hearted love or uh, I'll, I'll see if I love him or not kind of love. No, no, it's great love for us. God who is rich in mercy, okay? He's not short in mercy. God is not tight with his mercy. He's not miserable with his mercy. God is rich. He's loaded, okay, in mercy. Verse 5, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, all because Paul wants us to understand this. It is by God's grace you have been saved. Nothing we've done, nothing of our achievements, nothing of our lack of achievements, nothing about our good life or awful life. It is a work of God. And as a result of that grace, God, verse 6, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. Do you catch it? God raised us up with Jesus. That's an incredible thing. What he does for Jesus, he does for you and me. We got a good hold of that this morning. And he seated us with him in the heavenly realms. He's sharing the spoils, everyone, in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For this classic verse, Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork, God's workmanship, God's poem, whatever your version might say, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Great stuff, isn't it? Let's pray. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is living and active, and Lord, it is ready to do business, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds today. Uh, Lord, we pray this often, and we acknowledge that we will not remember every single thing that is communicated from this stage, but we know we are here by design. You have one way or the other brought us into the room for such a time as this. And so, Lord, there is something in this conversation that you've brought each of us in this 
room to hear. And I pray, God, that you will help us not miss the moment for which you have brought us uh, to church today. And so, Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your blessing, your challenge, your favor, but most of all, the presence and the abiding presence of the Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit and his word in Jesus' name. And everybody... Uh, it's a week or two, I think, uh, a year or two, actually, probably now, um, since uh, this conversation happened. But I was in the gym uh, with, a, with a guy uh, who you know, was just doing some stuff with in the gym. He belongs there. I don't belong there, uh, but somebody who he's heavy and he, he's, he can lift heavy and he's the real deal. And he was kind of out of sorts, everybody. He wasn't just quite himself. And you'll know what that's like. Sometimes you feel out of sorts. Sometimes you know what it's like when other people are out of sorts. And he was going through a bit of a hard time, and the hard time was this, that his elderly relative had moved into his house to live with him full-time, and the relative was suffering with dementia, okay, that Alzheimer's had moved in and pretty much taken hold of this man's heart and mind and life. And of course, my friend then was dealing with this, and they were struggling with this, and it was just very, very difficult. Now, he knows my mate at the gym, he knew what, what I was about and what I do for a living and all of that stuff. And so sometimes when people discover what you do, they get reflective, they can get philosophical with you, they can kind of, you know, become a little bit unmasked and a bit more vulnerable sometimes. And so he was, he was kind of talking to me about it and he was saying things like, you know, I feel God's kind of chasing after me a bit. And I, you know, then he moved on to another kind of topic as his brain was all over. He says, sometimes I look at this guy on my, in my heart house and this relative that he has and I just look at him and he doesn't know me at all and I just kind of wonder is, is, is this what my life is? Is this what his life is? Is, is this what it's kind of all about? Is, is, this, is there any meaning to this? And then he turned around and he dropped, he dropped down the, the big question everybody. He says why am I even here? And when you're in the middle of the gym down to do a front squat, why am I here, Brian? <laughs> Give me a minute. I'll come back to you. It's just we don't know how to answer those questions in the moment. Anyone ever asked you a spiritual question you wish you had the answer for? Then you drive home and you think, oh, I had I said that. You know, that was kind of one of one of these moments. Why am I even here? And, you know, for many of us in the room, there'll be certain times and certain seasons that bring some of these types of questions and emotions to our minds. Why am I here? What is the point? Is this all there is? Is there not something more in our lives? Samuel Beckett, he wrote an Irish playwright, he wrote a play called Breath. And whatever you do, everybody, please do not book tickets to buy and go and see this. And I'll tell you why. It only lasts 35 seconds, okay? So get a YouTube version of it or something and do your life a favor. And let me walk you through the play, okay? It begins with a dark stage. Imagine a dark stage, total blackout. Then you hear the sound of a newborn baby's cry, followed by a breath being drawn slowly in. Simultaneously, at the same time as the breath's drawing in, okay, the lights suddenly and slowly, suddenly and slowly, let's go with slowly, slowly go on to the stage, okay? And on the stage is a big pile of rubbish, big pile of garbage. I don't know what it is, but just rubbish everywhere. You can imagine the scene, bin liners and bags and all the rest of it. Then the breath is slowly let out and the lights go dim until the stage is in darkness again. There's a second cry, and that's it. The play's over. Boom! 35 seconds. 
And what Beckett wants us to understand about his demonstration of what life is, is that it's garbage. Is that it's over in a single breath. It is rubbish. Now, that's a bit fatalistic for me. It's right at the extreme, okay? And I don't believe that most of us in this room kind of share the view of Beckett. I think most of us, by and large, believe life is more valuable than garbage. But there are those moments in our life when we think this is it. Is, is this it? Is this the point of it? Why are we here? And the reality is, there is a reason why we all feel like that. And the Bible tells us where this feeling emanates from, where it comes from. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, next to Jesus, writes in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, and he brings incredible insight to the human psyche and condition, okay? And it's, 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 I don't know, it's hundreds and hundreds of years old, and yet the relevance of, and the reality of it is still stunning. Solomon says this, that God has set eternity into the human heart. That means for all humanity, anyone who has ever been born and is yet to be born will be born and go through life with this sense of eternity woven through the fabric of their being. It is this living with an innate sense of something more, of something bigger. There's something else to life. What could it be? We're born with it, everybody. And what we need to understand today, and what I'd love more of the world to get an understanding of, that this cry of the soul is eternal. It is not something that can be solved by anything we can buy or do. It is an eternal cry. And the reality is that it's only an eternal cry that needs an eternal response. There is nothing that we can do in this world, this world that overpromises and consistently underdelivers. If you remember nothing else about this conversation today, remember this. And it's this that the temporal cannot satisfy the eternal. The temporal can bury it for a while. The temporal can massage it for a while. The temporal can deal with it for a while. But sooner or later, the eternal comes back and demands to be dealt with. It demands to be satisfied. The temporal, nothing we can build, do, occupy, spend, buy, own. None of the temporary things can satisfy the emotion or the innate sense of the eternal, the thing that goes on forever within us. The reality is this, that only an eternal God can silence or satisfy an eternal cry. Only an eternal God can satisfy an eternal desire. Why? Because it was God who put it there. He put the sense of our need of Him in us before and when we are born. How then is this sense of eternal desire satisfied? How is it answered? What is the response? Some of you will love the response. Others, you know, may not like the response at all. But the way, the eternal sense of who we are, that cry of our soul is satisfied, it comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through His Son. And so maybe you're in the room right now. Maybe you're, you're watching and listening online and we're glad that you're here. And maybe you are struggling to kind of square the circle of the narrative of the world that you are living in at the moment. 
Maybe there is an unsettling in your soul. Maybe it's not even the crisis of my friend, but maybe it's just you have all the stuff and you have all the bits and bobs and all the tools of life and everything, and yet there's still something that just doesn't feel in place. And it might be then today that we discover why we're here. Why we're part of it? Why are we alive? What is, what is our purpose? Maybe today we could find out what our eternal soul is deeply longing for. And maybe, just maybe, it could be satisfied in this room today and our lives are completely changed. Our verses are found in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll probably poke around verses 4 to 10 for the most part. They are written by the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. And kind of Ephesians is a book where Paul kind of loses himself. You can read a, a, you know, Ephesians chapter 3. He goes off on one and, you know, and it's, it's just majestic and, and it's profound, the kind of way he puts it across. And it's really all about the resurrection of Jesus and what the resurrection of Jesus means for the church. It is in Ephesians that we learn about the armor of God. It is in Ephesians we learn about marriage. It is in Ephesians we learn about Christ's gift to the church. We have spiritual gifts, then we have the gifts of the Father. In Ephesians we have Christ's gift, Jesus' gifts to the church, and we find them in Ephesians 4. Sometimes they're referred to as the fivefold, that's the apostle, prophet, and so on. And then it's in Ephesians we learn about the inherent power within the local church, and that's a, a lovely thing for me to think about. I, I, love, I love thinking about just how powerful the church is and, uh, and, and exploring all of that. But in amongst all of Ephesians, what we have at the beginning of chapter 2 and all the way to verse 10, Paul is, is, is exploring what the resurrection of Jesus means for you and me. Jesus is alive. So what? Right? Paul answers all of that in the first 10 verses. And as part of that so what response, and crucially for us today, it means he wants to address what our purpose is, what our genuine purpose, our divine purpose, the, the why am I here question. And in the first three verses, Paul gets straight to the point, which I think if you're anyway familiar with Paul, would be fairly consistent with his personality. He gets straight to the point as to why our soul just can't seem to find the thing. Why can't I find the source that will satisfy? Why not? Why can't I do it? And Paul tells us, he tells us why it's so difficult to discover and then to live with a sense of our true calling. And let me paraphrase. He says, the path to living out God's purpose has been blocked and it's been caused by a separation. Now, let me give you a, an uncomfortable word. Let me give you something that's not probably, you know, culturally trendy at the moment. But the reason why our, 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 we, we feel separated from the, the true cry of our soul is because of sin. Yes? Do we believe in sin? Do we believe in sin as out there anymore? Do we even believe in I think I think we do. A cursory look at the news, okay, would remind us sin is rampant everywhere. Wouldn't you say it's still there? It's still relevant. And it gets in the way of you and I and human beings connecting with our true eternal source. 
And so what we have is that, that Paul is, is, is presenting this, this kind of malevolence. This, some of it's subtle, some of it's in your face, but combined it's this kind of malevolent, unholy trinity of influences that if you've been around church a while, you'll understand these influences to become known as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we see it here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Let me show you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. I told you he got straight to the point. As for you, you're dead, right? And here's why, because you're a sinner. Okay. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the number one, the world that we live in. You see it? And number two, then the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is just kind of code for the spiritual forces of darkness, let's say. It sounds like something from Lord of the Rings, but nevertheless, here we are. <laughs> Satan is, is, is there and he's here and he's at it. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us, and I love how Paul then just goes, and me as well, all of us, like we were all there, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. So that's number three. We have the world, then we have the devil, and then we have the flesh. John Stott says this, the basic tragedy of human existence is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Isn't it? it, I mean, that that is disturbing. That is tragic. And church, I want to encourage us in the the best possible sense, allow this, get your phone out, take a snap of that, because this should disturb us. That we are, we are going through life in, in our worlds, in the various places we find ourselves. And at any one time in the day, you could be in the school, you could be in the post office, you could be in Aldi, you could be in your mother's house. You, you could be in, in any one day. We find ourselves in a multiple amount of places. And we should all be disturbed by this because we collide with people in each of these places who, you know what, were created by God. Like everyone upstairs was created by God. And in the restaurant, and in all the rooms, they were all created by God. And they were created for God. They may not know it. They were created by God, and they were created for God. And the tragedy is they should be living with them, but they're living without God. And the reason Open Arms invests in buildings is so that us in here tell everyone out there that they are created by God, for God, and we want them to live with God. Amen? That's as simple. Call me old-fashioned. It's as simple as that. So we have these three influences that get in the way of our soul's answer that Jesus deals with. And as a result, we find it difficult to collide with our true purpose. Let's just poke with them a little minute. I'm not going to labor too long, but the ways of the world. Now, I will say this. You, you can go to church and you can get, get to people and places who hate the world. And the world's just one big dead place of 
dripping tar like sin and nothing good happens ever anywhere and Jesus comes soon and all of that. That is not probably me. That's not how I, I look at it. I believe if the kingdom of God erupted and arrived on earth with Jesus, we don't have it in his fullness. The fullness of the kingdom will arrive when Christ returns. And look, Sooner the better, let's be honest, okay? But until he returns, I'm not going to hate the world he's made. If, if redemption has come to me already, then I believe parts of creation are being redeemed as we speak. It could be theologically everywhere, but I have to believe it. And I, I look at the world, and I, I love the world, and I love, I love travel, I love getting around it, and I love being optimistic. Don't you love optimistic people? Are you optimistic? George's optimistic. Look at one of us is optimistic. Okay, what about this side? Any optimism over here? Any sunbeams? Little sunbeams for the Lord? Anywhere at all? Or just thunderclouds for Jesus? Coming around at the world. Right? We're going to stop scowling at the world. Stop doing that. That's what people think the church is. One big frown. Joy killers. No, we're joy creators. We're joy givers. Because Jesus is the strength of... Yes? Hello? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. But however, the reality is as well, we live in a world that's now, I was going to say increasingly not organized, but it's not organized at any level around Christianity. We used to have a Christian worldview, a Christian backdrop, you would call that, and it was still around. It's no longer around. It's somewhere in the north a wee bit, but down here, you guys have nailed it. It's all over. There is no Christian worldview in here. I mean, these, these counties. It's just done. It's, it's all over, okay? And, and so what we have now is, is a government and a world, and the Western world especially, rejects truth and legislates on personal preference. Yes? Let me just, I, I seen this on Instagram a while ago. Look at this. Fantastic. People used to change their opinion based on the information. Now they change the information based on their opinion. Welcome to the world, 2023 and beyond, okay? Doesn't matter what the... Truth is, okay, I will change the truth to match what I feel. We are feelings driven. We've lost our minds, okay? And so this is, this is what's happening. It's a snapshot of the world. If you want to understand postmodernism, you're welcome. It's right there, okay? That's it. So you have the pervasiveness of pop culture shaping opinion that has no limits, and it results in this kind of cultural bondage, okay? And, uh, and that keeps human beings striving. It keeps us... Do you notice how we're competing all the time, and we're polarizing? No one's getting together. Globalization is all over. We're, we're just starting to gather around in our poles and our tribes and so on, and it's, it's getting worser and worser and worser. Okay, for want of a better word. Then we have the devil. I'm not going to stand here and preach about the devil, okay? But what I will say is this. I will quote John Stott. The devil is the source of all our temptations to sin, and we may safely trace all evil, all error, and all violence back to him in the end. Amen? Still a huge malevolent force on the planet. And then we have the cravings of the flesh. That is our self-centered nature. Anyone self-centered? Are you ever in a group photograph? Who's the first person you look for? Oh, you're all self-centered. <laughs> How am I looking? You look at yourself first. Yes, you do. Check your lips. 
Check whatever that you do with your face. I don't know what happens. But we're all self-centered. We absolutely are, okay? We're trying not to be, but we are. There's, there's, there's still the unredeemed, Jesus comes soon, bits of us that just, oh, it's, it's just the thing, isn't it? And those, those selfish desires that desire the flesh, we have great things like food and intimacy and sleep. And what the, what the sinful kind of flesh, that kind of turns those things into other things. And so food becomes gluttony, intimacy becomes lust, and sleep becomes laziness. Hip, hip. It, it, it just does, okay? So we have all of these things, and with all of these things combined and they collide together, okay? Without Jesus, they, they really get in the way of connecting with the soul cry of our heart. And here's what happens when they all collide. The world then wants to replace our true purpose. Look to the world, look to this, look to that, you'll find it. The devil wants to rob because he's a thief. Yes? So he wants to rob our true purpose because if he can get in the way of you becoming your true self, if he can get in the way of you becoming the way you were made in God's image, if he can deny the true power that you could have, if he can minimize and reduce the authority you were born to carry, he's more afraid of you than you are. The enemy knows your divine potential more than you do. And the flesh wants to ruin it when we give in the temptation, when we twist desire for a overpromised, under-delivered substitute. Can you see how these all get in the way? But here's what Jesus does. He comes along. Watch this. What we need is a Savior who will redeem who will set us free. That's redemption, being set free so we can grab hold of our true purpose. Amen? It's good news. You glad you come to church? There's a pastor in the States, a guy called Dean Ortland, and he writes this. He says, Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners, that's me, their humanity. Giving them back your true humanity, who you were. Amen? And why does he do it? Verse 4, because of his great love for us. Verse 10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. This is the key that unlocks the whole thing. In other words, it is through the door of Jesus. It is through, how will I put it? It is through Christ that we step into who we were always meant to be. It is in Jesus that we kind of open this door in terms of our purpose into almost like an Eden moment where we begin to believe again that, you know, we, we, can, have, we can have true purpose and that we have that satisfaction for our souls. For me, these words are like fireworks, they're kind of like exploding in my mind against the, against the backdrop of like a, a life that's enslaved by the world, the devil, and the flesh. All of us can relate to all of those things. He loves us. He wants this for us. This is what the church is all about. This is what faith is. We've we put labels on faith. We, we've made faith about the church. The faith is about Jesus. And the church is all about expressing who Jesus is to bring that emancipatory part of who he is, that freedom, life-giving 
dimension to the kingdom of God. So we're nearly finished. I've got three quick things about how in Jesus then the Father restores all things to his children. Number one, we've got to learn this, that God saves us through Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Let us be categorically clear on that. There is no other name, no other God, no other deity, no other help program, no other Oprah best-selling, but there's no other name. Let's be clear about what we believe and who we believe. He is supreme. There is no one like Jesus. He is the name above all names. And he is not Jesus the shepherd. Jesus the wee lamb. You want to see who Jesus is today? Read Revelation. That's who he is. And that's who's coming back. Ephesians 2.1, it starts with these words. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Flick it then to verse 5. Look at the contrast. God made us alive, dead to life with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, why? Because it's nothing you've done. You have to know it's God's grace that you've been saved. And this is really, really so important. I was telling the first service about my Maryville moment, Maryville Avenue, Lisburn Road, Belfast, in February 1998. You've heard it from me a thousand times by now, I guess. But it's the moment I met the Lord. No church service, no altar call, no banjo, no prayer team, no nothing. I was writing stuff out for exams to become a charter surveyor. I failed the exams, by the way. Anyway, I'm sitting there, whatever, this presence of the Lord, do it now, do it now. I didn't need to know who it was, what it was I was to do. I just knew. You know when you know on your knees, classic, hand together, Lord, do this stuff. I don't know what I'm meant to be doing, amen. My point is at 8 o'clock that morning, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. But by 8.30 that night, I was alive with Christ. I just got to work and come home. Why? How? Because of his grace. Amen. <laughs> so good. Because of his grace. God made us alive with Christ when we were still dead in our transgressions. That means that when our lives weren't sorted out, when the addictions weren't dealt with, when the language wasn't cured, when all the bad habits wasn't sorted out, when all the you know, alternative viewing as we're scrolling and our late nights that wasn't all sorted out, when all the things we're doing, if anybody found out, we'd die. When all, just whatever, all that stuff was going on, God says, you know what, I'm still going to send my son to the cross. That's how much he loved you. He wasn't waiting for you to get all your ducks in a row. He was, went to the cross and he died for you. He rose again for you to make the way possible for you. Paul said this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. What a demonstration. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. That's a good day. It's good news. I don't know if you're here and you need to get right with God or you're wondering about how and what the time is. Today, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it 
off. The second thing briefly is God seats us in Jesus. This is, this is epic to me. God seats us with Jesus. In verse 6, it says, and God raised us up. And I got I to gotta, I gotta look at this again myself. Raised us up with Christ. I mean, that'll preach on its own. Wouldn't it? Like all the spoils of heaven just aren't for the son who's resurrected. They're for the kids that he brings with him. You ever think about that? I never saw that before till now. That's going to be another talk you're going to get soon. And God raises up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now, let me have this seat one second over here. Look at this. This is a queer chair. It needs two hands to lift it. There we go. If this is my life, okay, this is my perspective. You understand it? It's all I can see. This is the limit of what I can see. If it's, let's say, down here, I'll never get back up. If it's down here, this is the limit of my perspective. It's all I can see. I can't see any way out of this room. I don't know that there is a way out of this room. I don't think there is a way out of this room because I can't see any way out of this room because this is my life and this is my perspective. Yes? Then I meet Jesus, Al. And the Bible says that God seats me with him on a seat, on a throne. Well, let me take the seat. Oh, oh, life looks different from up here. I can still see all the things that I could see before. I'm just looking at them from a new level. I couldn't see a way through my life from that perspective, but I can see the door out of this room. I now can see a way through. Why? Because I'm seated with Christ who gives me a new perspective. Amen. Amen. Is that making sense? Yeah. I'm telling well, where's Jesus seated? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us uh, about the Father. He says, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, here's what happened in the heavenly realms. He seated him, watch this, far above, not just above, that we can still, you know, far above all rule and authority. Again, a nod to the, the unseen darkness, all of that. Power and dominion. Again, same thing. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the ones who come. So when God raised Jesus uh, back to life in the tomb, and then he ascended, he ascended to the throne. Isn't that beautiful? We've got to understand this. Jesus' ministry is seated. That's how in control he is. He's not running about like a mad thing. He's seated. And that also... Our God's having a seat. Praise the Lord. That's how in charge he is. And then the Bible tells us so that Jesus at the right hand of the Father, where are we? At the right hand of the Son. It hardly seems believable. But if we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, listen to me, it means you are far above all rule and authority. You are far above all power and dominion. You are far above every name that is evoked, not only in the present age and in the one to come. Doesn't that shift your perspective? Doesn't that change how you live your life? 
Doesn't that change how we're going to leave this room, how we're going to engage with all the different places we find ourselves this week? That you are in the healthiest, humblest, beautifulest sense, you are above it all. That everything that comes at you, you are above it all. I'm the only believer in my work, you are above it all. I get persecuted in my university class because you are above it all. All, every circumstance that comes at you cannot ruin you because you are in Christ above it all. Amen? Our perspective shifts. I heard a pastor say this once. Because of our perspective, we are no longer on earth praying to heaven. Rather, we are in heaven praying over earth. That shifts things for me. And when it comes to living out your purpose... This new seating arrangement changes everything. And I want you to get this. Watch this. Put the next slide up. The world can't replace it. The devil can't rob it. The flesh can't ruin it. Why? Because they can't reach it. Because the word says you are far, far above it. So why do we then get off our chair and our throne and mix in it when we have authority over it? Amen? Worship team, you're free to go back up. Charlotte, can I give you that wee chair? Thanks, baby. Oh, wow, good on me. And the final thing is this, everybody. It's really short. Thanks for listening. Is that not only does he send us Forgive me. He saves us and seats us. He sends us. And he sends us, everyone, back to the start in Jesus. Now, hands up anyone who loves a good board game. Yeah, board, I hate them. <laughs> I just can't stand them. <laughs> board game for me is B-O-R-E-D. <gasps> board game. It's like, oh. My wife loves board games. Don't you, babe? Loves board games. It's a happy marriage. You want to play a board game? No. Oh, go on. Sometimes I play Monopoly. Anyone like Monopoly? Every man cheats in Monopoly, yes? I cheat in Monopoly. There's hotels where they're... I don't even own houses, and they put a hotel. How'd that get there? I don't know. I'm always the banker. <laughs> Cash. Cash is, cash is king, eh? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I hate board games. But Monopoly, I'll, I'll beat you because I cheat. If you ever have us around, I'll cheat. I'm just telling you. You know, it's not my fault. It's your fault. <laughs> For tempting me. It's cravings of the flesh right there. We used to play snakes and ladders. Remember snakes and ladders? Remember that? Anyone still play snakes and ladders? And the old time I would give in and play board games with our children. <laughs> it's terrible. We'd play snakes and ladders. And I can remember whenever I hit the snake, and I hit the snake, I'd go back to oh, at the bottom again. Our kids would squeal and go, yeah, daddy, stick it at you. Whatever, in four-year-old terms. They would love it when we hit the snake. I'm telling you, you go all the way back to the start. Some of us in life, we hit the snake, don't we? We go all the way back. We give in to the world, the flesh, and the devil, whatever, and we seem to, oh, we lose our spot. 
But what if I was to tell you that in Jesus, you get to play the game again. You get a new start. We've read it already. The Bible says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, good stuff, good works, which God prepared. This is really epic. God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a whole pile of stuff in heaven waiting to get done. And we are nearly finished, but I'm going to go Greek on you. And then we're done. But the word created in Ephesians is in one other place in the New Testament. And it's found in Romans 1.20 against Paul. And it says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. So what I want us to do is to, in our, in our minds, and you're listening well, and I know you're but let's, let's quickly just join these verses together with the meaning. And what Paul says is this, what he wants us to understand when he says that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And remember, the only other time he uses that word is to reference the creation of the world. So what Paul is saying is that when we connect in Jesus created in Christ Jesus, part of that connection tr takes us back to the true purpose for which we are made. The whole idea of being, let me use this term, it's a Bible term, born again, is, is not a philosophical one. It is not even really a spiritual term. It is a biblically, biblically legal term that before the Lord renders you brand new and positions you, as it were, in the moment of Eden to play the game again. Amen? Jesus is awesome. So good. David writes in Psalm 8, verse 4 to 6, he says, What is mankind that you are mindful of him? <laughs> Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. That's you. In Ireland, we're going to struggle to believe that could be anything like us at all. In Christ, you're crowned with glory. Now, but Brian, if you knew, I don't care. You're back to the garden. You're crowned with glory. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet. And so here is our true purpose. Number one, it is found in Christ. And as a result, it is to worship him and to serve him. And the way we do that is not by just coming to church. That's part of communities, to put encouragement, to be blessed and to be a blessing. But the way we worship Jesus and to serve Christ in the world that we are living in is to embrace the authority he has given us to expand the kingdom of God on the earth. Amen? That's what we, it's not just hands in the air, it's hands out in the air. And wherever we are, he is, and wherever he is, anything can happen. 
We have to believe we can take Jesus into our work and believe for miracles, into our marriages and believe for healing and restoration, into our families and believe for unity, into our bodies and believe for healing, into our workplaces and believing for prophetic words and deliverance and just such a sense of God's presence. Why? Because after today, our perspective has shifted. We are not under it, we are. Come on, we are We are over it. What Jesus is calling in, us into is to live a life where we become to this world what he was to his. And Jesus was the tangible demonstration of the love of God. One of the things that we'll play around with a lot in Colossians, and I'm closing with this, is this, that Paul writes to the church there and he says, Jesus is the visible form of the invisible God. Listen to me. You are the visible form of the invisible God. What a privilege. What a responsibility. What a calling. Terrifying and amazing all at the same time.